Morning, everyone. If you could grab your seats, that would be wonderful. Fantastic. Uh, if you are new and visiting or you're old and you forgot a Bible, um, you can put your hand up and we'll get you a Bible so that you can read along. Uh, there's plenty of seats down the front, so find a spot. Actually, not that many seats. We keep on having to put out more seats, which is fun, uh, which is great. Welcome, everyone. Uh, I forgot to mention, my name's Riley. I'm the pastor of the church. It's a joy to serve in this role. It's a joy to bring you God's Word. We're right near the end of 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 5 through 7. If you'd like a title for today's message, it's The God Who Cares. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5 through 7, The God Who Cares. And we only have hmm, two, I think, sermons left. Maybe three in this series. So, and then we're done. And then we have some good things planned as well. So don't you worry about that. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5 through 7. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him, because He cares for you. Let's pray. Our God and Father, may you bless the reading and the preaching of your holy word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. I think I can take you back to when I was 16. I was in my youth leader's silver, really old Tarago. There's about seven of us in the car and I don't know, we were going to Macca's in Sylvania. I grew up in the Shire. Tim Billhart was the leader. And we were just having a normal, pleasant conversation. And then one of my friends dropped a bomb on me that I was not expecting. I can't remember all the context of the conversation, but James Wallace, sitting behind me in those bench seats, just felt like seemingly out of nowhere said, <laughs> Oh, Riley, you and I are the most arrogant people ever. And I was, I was, I was shocked. Uh, I was not aware, A, of my arrogance, or B, that anyone thought I was arrogant. But evidently, that secret sin had made its way out into my life and was so obvious to my friend that he could joke about it, thinking, of course he knows, <laughs> of course he's aware. But in that moment, I did not respond humbly. I responded as an arrogant person would, challenging the diagnosis and the assumption, asking, does anyone else think this is the case? And I think people probably feeling sorry for me said, oh, no, I don't, I don't, I don't think so. Uh, the reality of, of pride is that it, it can be a subtle sin to yourself. And you don't realize that actually you're deeply infected with it. At times, we can even hide it from others. Maybe I'm better at hiding my pride as a 33-year-old than I was as a 16-year-old. But other sins are more obvious. 
rage. If you're a rageful person, it's obvious. You walk, you drive past, and you hear the horn and the swearing and the fingers are going everywhere. You're like, okay, that person's got rage. You can see it in the home. You can see it in context at work. Even other sins like procrastination are obvious because things don't get done or they get done at the last minute and you know that, okay, this person's lazy or, or, or a sluggard. They, they put it off. They procrastinate. But pride is more subtle and more deadly because, as the text tells us from Proverbs 34, this quote, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Theologian, pastor John Stott once said this, at every stage of our Christian development and in every sphere of our Christian discipleship, pride is the greatest enemy and humility our greatest friend. Pride is our greatest enemy at all stages in our life, and humility is our greatest friend. And so Pastor Peter, as he looks out at the dispersed Christians throughout Asia Minor, as he rounds out his letter, gathers them with one final, or there's a few final, but one of his final thoughts is, pursue humility. Three times, actually four times in these three verses, he mentions the need for humility. Younger people to be submissive to the elders. Humility in community, everyone to humble themselves before each other. He quotes Proverbs as his reasoning. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And then he commands humility before God himself. Humility is certainly the theme of these verses. But when we think of humility, depending on how much teaching we've had of it, um, I think Dane Ortland in his book, Humility, uh, offer, it gives a good description of how we can have misconceptions. We can think of humility as hiding. This is very Aussie. Just pretend as if you're not very good at something. So you do, you know, you do some incredible act of service and someone says, thank you so much. You say, oh, it was nothing. Or you paint an incredible picture and then you immediately go, oh, well, I, you know, I missed that little bit there. And, so it's, and we think humility is hiding our skills or our talents or what we've done or diminishing our skills or our talents or what we've done. That's actually not humility. Or we might think humility is self-hatred. Like the really humble person just hates themselves. Self-loathing, low self-esteem. They just think they're terrible. Or we might think of humility as just pure weakness, depending on our background. We might look at someone who is humble and just think, that person doesn't fight for themselves, doesn't fend for themselves, doesn't put themselves forward. That's just weakness. And I don't want to be weak. I want to be strong. We often think humility is a necessary but unenjoyable virtue. Humility, we can think, is necessary. All right, yeah, we're Christians. We're meant to be humble. But it's unenjoyable to pursue humility. It's like taxes. You've got to do them because you've got to do them, but we don't enjoy doing them. Or going to the dentist. 
No, I don't know of anyone. There might be someone in the room that's like, oh, yes, I cannot wait for the little thing that scratches on the teeth for 15 minutes and you feel like someone's scraping on the nails. No one wants to go to the dentist, but you know you've got to go, so you go. Pursuing humility can feel a bit like that. But in C.S. Lewis's classic work, Mere Christianity, this is how he describes humility. He says, to get near it, even for a moment, is like a drink of cold water to a man in a desert. Isn't that so different from how we often think of humility? To get near humility, even for a moment, to experience humility is like drinking cold water in a desert. It's life-giving. It's replenishing. Isaiah, speaking on behalf of God, tells us what God loves. And Isaiah 66 too says, But this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Humility draws the gaze of God. Humility is like a cup of cold water in the desert. And Peter wants his readers and his churches to enjoy that cup of cool water and be refreshed. He wants his readers and us to have the favourable eyes of God looking upon us. And so he commends them in this text three times to pursue humility. Do you want the relief joy and harmony that humility promises? Well, then let's dive into our text and study it today. And my hope is that at the end, we'd all be passionately pursuing humility before God and others. Three points to help us drink that cool water. Point number one, the priority of humility. Point number one, the priority of humility. Three times Peter commands this church that they must pursue humility. It's clearly a priority for Peter and ought to be a priority for us. They are suffering Christians. They're in the midst of exile. They feel like they're aliens and strangers in the world. They're living for Jesus, but experiencing the hatred of the world. And so he commends them not just to resilience, not just to endurance, not just to perseverance, but to humility. A suffering people need humility. In verse 5, he commends the younger, that is not younger in age, but actually younger spiritually, to be subject to the elders. That is, he's making a distinction between the elders, verses 1 and 4 we saw last week, and the congregation. And basically saying to the whole congregation, be submissive to the elders. To the church, he says, clothe yourselves with humility. And finally, before God, we must humble ourselves. And to establish his point, he gives this quote from the, New, from the Old Testament that drives home the priority of humility like nothing else. If you ever needed motivation to pursue humility, then read verse 5c with me. Why should we do it? For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God Almighty opposes the proud, but gives grace to the, hum uh, to the humble. I don't think anything could be more frightening than to have God 
actively oppose you in his sovereignty, in his omnipotence, in his omnipresence to set himself up against you. Now, as an unbeliever, God can set himself up against you for judgment. As a believer, he can set himself against you in discipline, but no one wants God set up against us. And God seems to uniquely hate pride. If you look through the Proverbs, there's other Proverbs that talk about pride. Proverbs 6, 16 to 17 talks of this, this list of things that God hates, and pride is at the top. Uh, there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to Him. What's at the top? Haughty eyes. That is, prideful looking around, judging and putting people down and thinking, I'm pretty good. And the eyes are the window to the soul. And so haughty eyes means a proud soul. God hates. It's an abomination to be proud. Proverbs 8.13 in the NIV says, To fear the Lord is to hate evil. And then the, in wisdom, the, the lady wisdom says, I hate pride and arrogance. I don't think I took it very seriously in that car trip. It hurt my, it wounded me in my esteem, but I wasn't aware when I was 16 of just how much God hates pride. I might have not liked pride because it meant people didn't think of me as highly, but God himself hates pride. Proverbs 16.5, everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured he will not go unpunished. Pride is nothing less than contending with God for supremacy. Pride is contending with God for supremacy. It's saying, I will rule my life. I will make my decisions. I will do what I want to do. You aren't involved. I'm not looking to you for counsel. I'm not looking for you to control me. I'm not looking for you to do it. I want to do it myself. Pride is self-centered. Self-absorbed, self-righteous, seeking self-glorification. Pride is when you are the center of your world and everything revolves around you. Another story from when I was 16, I remember sitting in PDHPE class and Mrs. White, I think it was, I was so confused. Maybe I was 15. I was so confused because the start of the lesson was she asked this question, who is the most important person in the world? And I, I, I went to church, I went to youth group. So my instinct was, what, Jesus? She said, you, you are the most important person in the world. If you don't make you the most important person in the world, no one else will. And, you know, that's my teacher telling me what's the truth. But I knew from church that wasn't the truth. I was just confused. I was like, how can that be true? And then logically, if there's 30 of us in the room and we're all the most important person in the world, that doesn't make sense. Pride is turned in on itself. Me, my story, my glory, my reputation, my life. That's what matters most. And God opposes the proud. But he gives grace to the humble. This is why it should be such a priority for us. What is humility then? What, what draws the gaze of God? Well, C.J. Mahaney in his excellent, excellent book, Humility, says this. Humility is honestly assessing ourselves in light of God's holiness 
and our sinfulness. Humility is honestly assessing ourselves in light of this, God's holiness and our sinfulness. No one stands proud beside the cross. The cross is the ultimate demonstration that we aren't that great. In fact, it's far worse. For if even Christ only determined to save one person and it was you, he would have had to have gone through it all. That's how bad our sin is. And humility is recognizing that in light of God's holiness and his perfection for all eternity, how far we fall short. And therefore, looking upon ourselves and realizing, I'm a sinner. I'm a rebel. I don't deserve anything. I don't deserve sun, water. I don't deserve air conditioning, fans. I don't deserve friendship. I don't deserve anything. I'm a sinner that has sinned against a holy God. I deserve wrath and punishment and eternal judgment. The humble person assesses themselves and has a true perspective of who they really are before God and therefore is lowly when they think of themselves. They think of others as more important. They think of others as um, of greater worth and significance. Instead of comparing ourselves horizontally to one another, going, well, I'm not as good as that person, but I'm better than that person. Humility calls us to assess ourselves before God and realize just how far fall we short, uh, short we fall. It's the entrance to the kingdom of heaven. Unless you humble yourself like a child, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You'll never come to Christ for salvation unless you humble yourself and realize you're a sinner. Winston Churchill often had great quips and biting commentary. And he once said of a political opponent, and I thought given it's election week, it'd be fine to bring a political point here. He said of one of his opponents, he is a modest little man with a good deal to be modest about. <laughs> but isn't that true of us? We have so much to be modest of. Ought we not to be these humble people? We are fickle, weak, self-obsessed, easily angered, and that's just me before 9am, every day. C.S. Lewis also said, If anyone would like to acquire humility, I can, I think, tell you the first step. The first step is to realize that one is proud. And a biggish step too. <laughs> humility must be a priority in our life. For God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. And the first step in that humility path is recognizing you're a proud person. CJ says in that book, I'm not a humble man. I'm a proud man seeking humility. Humility, though, it is somewhat valued in our culture. It's not valued in the ancient world. And to the readers that Peter was writing to, any reverence we have of humility in the West is only as a result of the writings of Peter and Jesus Christ. In the ancient world, to be humble was of a lower state that you should not be humble. It was weak to be humble. Slaves ought to be humble because they're slaves. But if you're a nobleman or a freeman, you ought not to be humble. You ought not to have a slave's mentality. You ought to see yourself as above the riffraff. And yet Christ and Peter speaks into that world, cuts against their thing and says, humble yourself. Why? 
God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And what greater example of humility then do we have of Christ himself? Philippians 2. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. God delighted in his son, in his humility and condescension. And God delights in any who humble themselves before him. And then he seeks to pour out his unmerited favor. So if you want the unmerited favor and grace of God in your life, then actively pursue humility and actively weaken pride. It ought to be a priority if you want the blessing of God in your life. And so at every stage of our Christian development and every sphere of our Christian discipleship, pride indeed is our greatest enemy because it brings the opposition of God. And humility is our greatest friend. It's a cup of cold water. It draws the eyes of God and it ought to be a priority in our life. Are you actively pursuing humility? I'm going to confess that it wasn't on my radar as such until this week, to my shame, to my folly. Why was I not constantly thinking about humility if it's my greatest friend and pride's my greatest enemy? And perhaps you're in the same boat too. Perhaps today is a day to reassess, where is pride in my life? Where do I need to grow in humility? How can I weaken this pride? How can I strengthen my humility? So how do we put this into practice? Well, that leads us to point number two. So point number one, the priority of humility. Point number two, the practice of humility. Now, I can't say all that there is to say on this topic. I would commend to you Humility by C.J. Mahaney. It is a fantastic book. Also, I would commend to you uh, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness by Tim Keller. That little book is up in the back. That will take you less than an hour to read, and that is a wonderful exploration of humility and also a great definition of humility, self-forgetfulness. But the Apostle Peter has three things, three specific commands for us in how to apply humility to our life. But the, the first thing we need to note before we look at the, the practices of each one of those three is that the hint or the, the, the tone of each one of those is that we must do it ourselves. Each of these three commands, submit yourself, clothe yourself, humble yourself. Humility will not come naturally. Humility will only come through an active pursuit, an active putting yourself under by the grace of God. And so the most important thing you've got to know about humility from these three verses is that you must pursue it yourself. It won't come to you naturally. These commands may seem like, oh, burdensome things, but every command in Scripture is actually an invitation. It's an invitation to true life. Peter is inviting us to drink a cup of cold water. And so here's three cups of cold water to pursue. Number one, humble yourself before the elders. 1 Peter 5.5. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. So he's established the role of pastors in verses 1 to 4, and then he turns to the rest of the congregation 
and says, you who are younger, submit yourself under their leadership. Uh, and by God's grace, you do that so well as a church, and this, I don't think, is a temptation, a great one for us, but it is here in Holy Scripture, and it is worth mentioning that my job is to shepherd the flock of God, and your job and your requirement is to be submissive unto this leadership, whether you're here or to any other church. This doesn't excuse sinful, domineering leadership, abusive leadership. You never follow leaders into sin. Wives never sin with your husband. Church members never sin with your leaders. All those caveats aside, and this is a great evidence of grace in our church, you guys have submitted yourself unto your leadership, uh, and you do a great job of it. And so that's all I'm going to say on that one. So keep going. Uh, and if you're new and visiting, join in uh, to that cup of cold water and experience God's active grace to you as you humble yourself before leaders. Secondly, humble yourself before all of the community. He goes on to say, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. I can see that all of you did a good job of getting dressed this morning. No one came to church naked. Uh, that's an evidence of grace. Well done. Peter commends to us to not come to church spiritually naked also. It's not just avoiding pride. We must actively clothe ourselves with humility, draping humility. Uh, the, the word is, is likely this little apron that a, 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 even a, a shepherd would put on as they tend to the sheep. Following on from last week's passage, there's no better explanation, I think, in Scripture of what it looks like to clothe yourself in humility toward one another than in Philippians chapter 2, verse 3 to 4. I think if you need to memorize a verse to think, what does humility look like in community? It looks like this. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility... Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests. So it's not, a, you don't, it's not that you have to go, oh, I don't matter at all. I got nothing. I'm terrible. And I shouldn't even eat at all or drink or sleep. I just, I'm just there for it. No. Okay. Look not only to your own interests. You're going to do that. But also to the interests of others. To clothe ourselves with humility is to walk into church and consider everyone else as more significant than yourself including me. This is clothe all of yourselves. I am to see all of you as more significant than me. Never is a leader meant to think of themselves above. No, no, no. They just have a different part of the body. We're all part of the body. Each part matters. Each part is equally glorious and dignified. And so the humble person walks into a room and thinks, whoa, these are significant people. These are sons and daughters of the king. Okay, Okay, what, what can I do? How can I be around them? What, how can I serve? How can I hear their story? And there's no better illustration, if there's no better explanation of communal, whole, um, of communal humility than Philippians 2, I think there's no better illustration than of Christ washing the disciples' feet. And notice how potentially these words rung and this scene rung in Peter's ears even as he wrote, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper, which just is an incredible... We don't have time. I'll move on, but... Yeah, okay. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. He clothed himself with the servant's towel. 
poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you should do, also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. And if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Counting others more significant and practically serving other people in our life, at church, in our community, in our homes, taking that towel, taking the form of a servant. And lo and behold, guess what? If you serve other people, do you know how other people will treat you? Like a servant. <laughs> that's, and that's just the reality. People love to be served. People want to be served. And they won't often encourage you. They'll just take it for granted. But that's what slaves do. They just do the job. They don't get a reward. Now, in our church, it ought to be that we are thanking and encouraging and blessing one another. And you do do it, but don't do it with the expectation. But do it with the expectation that someone's watching. The eyes of the Lord look to he who is humble and contrite in spirit. The eyes of the Lord look to bless the humble. And so as you serve one another, clothing yourself with humility, you draw the gaze of God. And there's a promise in this command. You will be blessed. It may not feel like a blessing, but you will be blessed. And if you don't serve, you might feel like, hey, I'm getting away with it. No, no, no. You're missing out. So what does this look practically? Okay. Be interested in other people. <laughs> Think that their story is more important than your story. Listen. Ask questions. Don't wait for them to stop so you can then tell your side. Just be interested. You're more significant than me. I want to hear what's going on in your life. It's such a challenge to do this, uh, but I encourage you, I commend you to do it. What does it look practically? Be ready to serve, thinking, okay, what can I do to bless people around me? How can I serve them? It's my job. This is my privilege. This is my joy. How can I serve? At church, at home, wherever you are, think, the humble person thinks, how can I serve? The humble person also is ready to encourage. The proud person sets himself up above others and only sees faults. The humble person is aware of what God is doing in other people's lives and therefore is looking to spot what is going on and encouraging other people, spurring them on, looking, oh, isn't that great that you did this? And thank you so much for doing that. The humble person is aware of God's activity and is therefore encouraging other people. What does it look like to encounter a humble person? Again, C.S. Lewis, I believe, helps us. He says, Do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man, he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be a sort of greasy, smarmy person who's always telling you that, of course, he's a nobody. Probably, all you will think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. If you do dislike him, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. 
That's, that's the cup of cold water. The freedom of self-forgetfulness. When we're in the center and our needs are in the center and our reputation is in the center, it's exhausting because you'll never be met. You'll never be the respected the way you want to be respected. But if you can forget of yourself and pour yourself out like a servant like Christ, you experience the cheer and the gladness of being free of yourself and just being concerned with other people. So he calls us to submit to elders. He calls us to clothe ourselves with humility to each other. And the third practical way that we practice humility is, and the most important is number three, humble yourself before God. If you don't do this one, you won't be able to do the others. You have to clear the ground between you and God vertically before you can do it horizontally. And so in verse six to seven, Peter says, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. We must humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. These are suffering, persecuted people. And he's saying, guys, what you need to do is you need to respect God's sovereignty and his will and purpose and plan. Put yourself underneath him. Whatever his will is for your life, Humbly recognize that's his will. That's his prerogative. He is good. He is mighty. And that term mighty hand of God refers back to when um, God liberated Israel out of Egypt through Moses and the plagues and the Red Sea. And it's described as my mighty hand. That's that term. And it's traced all the way through the Old Testament, talking back to Israel. And ultimately, it points forward to the cross. So we must humble ourselves before God. We must submit ourselves like we prayed in the prayer time. Your kingdom come, your will be done. But what does it look like to humble yourself before God? Sounds good in theory. Well, Peter is a pastor. He knows you're going to be sitting there thinking, okay, great. How do I do it? Well, then he tells you, verse 7. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. How? Verse 7. Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. The clear application of how to humble yourself before God to Peter is derived from verse 7. How do we humble ourselves? By casting our cares upon God. Casting your cares is one of the chief ways that you actually humble yourself before God. Because our cares turn us inward. They turn us all about ourselves. Our sufferings and our problems make us always looking down and looking in and thinking me and what am I going to do? How's it going to happen? What's going to be the result? What's going to be the outcome? I don't know what's going to happen. And then in humility, if we can humble ourselves, we take those cares and we cast them and we give them to God and say, you're in control. You are sovereign. You are good. I'm not the boss. I don't determine the outcomes of my life. I'm just a servant. I'm just your follower. You do what you will. Which is the ultimate act of humility. is placing your entire life and all your burdens in his hands and saying, not my will, but yours be done. That word cast there is an active and vigorous word. It's hurling your cares toward God. It's the word that the disciple is used to describe when the disciples took off their cloaks and put them on the donkey so that Jesus could ride into Jerusalem. So to cast your cares is to take your cares, and it's actually a singular 
word there in the Greek to say all of your cares, the totality of everything, there's not a care too great or too small. Take all of your cares and place them upon Jesus. Place them upon God and let him carry the burden. You take the robe of your anxiety off, you put it on Christ and he carries the burden for you. The implication of this, though, is that walking around worried, burdened, and anxious is a fruit of our sinful pride. Thinking, it's up to me. I've got to solve this. I've got to figure this out. I've got to make this happen. Our worry is an indication of prideful self-sufficiency. Tom Schreiner in his commentary says, Worry is a form of pride because when believers are filled with anxiety, they are convinced that they must solve all the problems in their lives in their own strength. The only God they trust in is themselves. When believers throw their worries upon God, they express their trust in His mighty hand, acknowledging that He is Lord and sovereign over all of life. In humility, we do the casting, He does the caring. C.J. Mahaney helpfully says, Each day, each and every one of us are either casting our cares or accumulating our cares. We all have anxieties. We all arrive here with differing degrees of anxiety. The only unanswered question this morning is, what are you going to do with them? Are you going to humble yourself and cast it, or are you going to arrogantly carry it? Now, it doesn't mean that we're resolved of all of our responsibility. No, it's we're resolved of the care, the ultimate outcome for those responsibilities we're placing into God's hands. It doesn't mean that instantly, as soon as you, okay, I cast this care, oh, I'm free. I'm just completely no anxiety anymore. That's not what I think Peter is saying. He's saying as an expression of faith, you cast your care to God and increasingly you'll feel he's got it, he's got it, he's got it, he's got it. That means that part of your job that is going poorly and you're worried about it, Cast it. That part of your relational world that is keeping you up at night, cast it. That child that just won't obey and if everything's going wrong, cast it. Not the child, the care of that child. (laughs) You're not sure how you're going to make your loan repayments as interest rates rise, cast the care. That fear you have regarding your physical health, cast it and give it to the Lord. All day, we're accumulating cares. What are we meant to do? Cast them. And when we don't want to, well, what's that? That's our sinful pride, resisting, trusting ourselves to Him. Maybe you're afraid of the outcome. If you give it to God, He won't give you what you want. Maybe we don't think He's got it covered. And you think, You're more powerful than God Almighty. Whatever it is, when we don't cast our cares, it's our pride. When we do, you are humbling yourself and inviting the grace of God to enter in. It's not a formula. It's an act of faith. It won't solve your anxiety instantly. 
but at least you'll know who's really carrying it. At least you've invited God into the journey. At least you now know once you've cast it that the one who has a mighty hand is now carrying your burden, which seems so big to you, but to him, it's just like a little shopping bag. At least you will know that the sovereign one who is all wise, all knowing, all good, and all powerful is on your case. He's got it. I still, I still got to do, I'm still responsible, I still got to act, I still got to work, I still got to be involved, but ultimately he's got it. And you may have to cast and recast hourly. Your 6 a.m. quiet time might not make you through to 7 a.m. You got to cast it again. It's not once for all, like I, I casted my cares 13 years ago. <laughs> no, 13 minutes ago, I feel like at the moment I'm living, I'm, maybe God's making me more anxious and caring so that I can be a living illustration of weakness, but I feel like I've been so burdened and anxious this last month, nothing major, just lots of little things, I keep having to cast and recast, cast and recast, cast and recast. So I'm not promising that all your anxiety will be solved, that's not been my experience, but I will promise you that you will have an active sense that God is on your case, and that is liberating, even if it's for five minutes. It's a cup of cold water to humble myself. It takes faith. You have to trust that he can carry it. It takes faith to leave it there and not take it back again. Refuse to carry your cares again. Leave it up to him. And CJ says, helpfully, that anxiety is a bully. Your anxieties will push you around. Your anxieties will talk at you. They will threaten you. They will come at you and they will not relent. And so what you have to do is you have to cast them again. Don't reason with it. Your anxieties will attack you. <laughs> but you can give them to one who knows all. And this is such good news. So there's lots there, but Peter wants us to have three practical ways that we can apply humility before the elders, before one another, and ultimately before God. But how do we know? How do we know that it's safe to do this? It leads us to the final point, very shortly, the promise of humility. We've seen the priority, the practice, now the promise. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him. Why? Because He cares for you. He cares for you. God, God Almighty, sovereign and majestic, cares for you. Not just you, Sovereign Grace Church, but you individually. If you are in Christ, if Christ shed His blood for you, He cares for you. God actually cares for you. He loves you. He loves you enough to die for you. He cares for you. You, what a joy and wonder are in those five words. We can cast because he cares. He actually cares. It may not feel like he cares. Suffering often makes us think of hard thoughts toward God, think that he's absent, think that he's against us. But no, this text reminds us he cares for you. And how do we know? Don't take your eyes off those words under the mighty hand of God. Because no explanation of those words, the mighty hand of God, would be complete unless we trace it all the way through to a hill called Calvary. 
because on that hill, God outstretched his mighty hand of redemption and deliverance by crushing his very own son for you and I. The mighty hand is a merciful hand. It outstretches in punishment on Christ so that it can be outstretched to you in generosity and care. The ultimate sign of God's care, the irrefutable sign that God actually cares for you in all your suffering is that he sent his son to die for you. How could we argue with the blood-stained brow of Christ? How could we charge him with not caring for us if he would give it all and sacrifice himself in our place and for our sins? And the promise of humility is that he will care for us in the present. And then, as the text says, one day, at the proper time, he will exalt us. There is coming a time when the humble will be exalted. And you and I will receive what we do not deserve. We'll be crowned with crowns of everlasting righteousness. We will enter into the kingdom of heaven and we will be exalted. And that will be an awkward day, but a glorious day. There is a day when we will go from being downtrodden to uplifted, from suffering to eternal bliss. It's not this day, but there is a day. And so keep your eyes on the present grace of God. He cares for you now. And the future grace of God, he will exalt you in the future. And that's the promise of humility. If you humble yourself, that, that is your reward. And that was Christ's reward. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The promise of humility is that one day you'll be caught up in the exaltation of Christ. So friends, I put it to you that even if it's not James Wallace taunting you from the back seat of a Tarago, there's likely arrogance and pride in your life. And it's your worst enemy. And may you pursue humility and so invite the mercy of grace of God into your life, humbling yourself before others and ultimately before God.